0: The Hop4 Podcast is proudly brought to you by Charles Farham. Charles Farham have been sellers of hops since 1865 and hop growers for even longer. They stock nitrogen-flushed leaf hops, T90s and T45 pellets, and to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition, they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire and Yakima in the USA. At CharlesFarram.com. Brewers can shop by pay-as-you-go or using agreed credit terms for yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. In addition to leading hop varieties from across the world, the Farums Family Range brings you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Most, Mystic, Olicana and Opus from their hop development programme right here in the UK. If you'd like more information or expert advice, visit the Brewers Resource and FAQ pages on the website or contact their technical advisors for different uses, applications and recipes. They're always really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.com today. That's charlesfarram.com. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast. Getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward podcast. William Shakespeare, The playwright extraordinaire wrote 38 plays in his lifetime and is arguably the most prolific storyteller throughout all history. There are few who have articulated the human condition with such accuracy and poetry as the bald-headed bard. However, in addition to smashing out hits like Romeo and Juliet and gut-wrenching tragedies such as Macbeth, unbeknownst to most, Shakespeare, was also a successful businessman, investing time and energy into other money-making ventures. He owned large plots of land and real estate that earned him a significant proportion of his overall wealth. While public figures typically gain notoriety for one particular talent, it is not uncommon for these individuals to actively engage in pursuits beyond their renowned sphere. Among the varied pursuits celebrities often embrace, the realms of food, drink and hospitality often stand out. For instance, Kelsey Grammer, who held the lead role in the 90s sitcom Frasier, co-founded the American Faith Brewing Company in upstate New York, 2015. Similarly, U2's lead singer Bono and guitarist The Edge are part owners of the Clarence Hotel, a bar and restaurant in Dublin. Closer to home, if you're a listener from the UK, Blur bass guitarist Alex James and outspoken TV presenter Jeremy Clarkson have each collaborated with beverage manufacturers to produce their own line of wines, beers and exploding ciders. While keyboard warriors and social media trolls may cynically perceive celebrities as merely cashing in on the latest trends for publicity, The truth is, many of these pursuits stem from a genuine passion and commitment. Like any astute entrepreneur, celebrities often have a diverse portfolio of businesses that mirror their individual interests and personalities. As Shakespeare said, one man in his time plays many parts. And this is undoubtedly true of screenwriter, producer and director Guy Ritchie. Richie's real interest in pubs, beer and brewing stems from his love of story. He learned early on that the pub was the best place to hear a yarn. As you'll hear later in our exclusive interview with the man himself, the impact of hearing the old boys, as he puts it, is evident within his movies. Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch both include the kinds of tales you often hear down the local. It's clear that, although storytelling is his main passion, the British pub is held in equally high esteem. Although publicly perceived as the gangster movie maker chatting to Richie privately, you get the impression he's deeply introspective, highly observant and meticulously creative. He is open about everything from his interests in religious iconography and esotericism to how the pub should be a space where people from all classes and walks of life should be able to put the world to rights over a few pints. Evidently, it is the accumulation of these enduringly fond memories down the pub that ultimately led him to create his own. Law of the Land in Fitzrovia, which sits in the shadow of the iconic BT Tower in London, is the embodiment and vision of Guy's perfect pub. His attention to detail and love of craftsmanship means law of the land oozes in character. However, as if owning a pub wasn't enough, Richie, who has been an avid beer drinker all his life, felt compelled to fill his pub and many others with his own beer by investing a significant sum of money into building a microbrewery, Gritchie Brewing Company. Driven by a fond memory of a long-forgotten Cascale he drank growing up, Richie set the task for his brewery to recreate this nostalgic beer that launched Ritchie Brewing Company into the public arena in 2017. English Law, a robust best-bitter, full of malt character and floral English hops, realized the filmmaker's dream and set the wheels in motion for what would become a family of brands that centered very much on hospitality, including an airfield taproom and eatery, in addition to Law of the Land and the Kashmir Caveman Wild Kitchen Company. Naturally, it would be tempting to solely focus on the cult of celebrity, but that would be rather unfair to the team behind Gritchie Brewing Company, the real start of this podcast. The brewery, owned by Guy Ritchie, sits on Ashgrove Farm, a working farm on Ritchie's vast Ashcombe estate, which crosses the borders between Wiltshire and Dorset. When I visited at the end of July, a series of beautiful reclaimed stone built and wooden buildings that house the brewery offices and the brewery lodge, a private tasting space reserved for invited guests, welcomed me. The picturesque backdrop is even more stunning. Endless fields of Marisota are a sea of yellow that gently hums in the breeze. The farm grows its own barley for use in beer production for Gritchie's beers, along with their natural spring water from a borehole at the brewery. They've toyed with the idea of growing their own hops to make the idea of a beer farm complete. While standing among the spring barley, I got to ask Brendan, the estates manager, whether he believes there's such thing as terrar in beer, a debate that's been roaring amongst brewers and craft beer types recently on social media. I'm a bit gutted that I didn't have my fancy recording gear on me at the time to catch his answers, so you'll have to make do with an iPhone recording and some background wind noise. I've done my best to clean this up, so you'll have to stay tuned in for, in my opinion, the definitive answer to whether there is torah in beer. Like everything Richie sets his hand to, the 20-barrel brew house is as aesthetically pleasing as it is functional and to the point. Rows of 40-barrel fermenters and three small five-barrel unitanks stand proud in this glorious space to ferment, condition and mature a wide range of beers from Hepperweissens to Harlequin hop neepers after a brief tour of the Brewery House, which features a steam boiler, copper clad fermenters and stained glass windows, we're led to the Brewery Lodge, a private bar and kitchen boasting a massive pizza oven that Guy Ritchie had built for his 40th birthday. The space now serves as a private tap room for visitors lucky enough to enjoy a pint or two while discussing business or being entertained. It is truly stunning. Aromas of wood and smoke intermingle while soft ambient lighting from antique lamps give off the aura of country pubs of old. I imagine a yarn or two has been told within its four walls over the years. At the far end, a copper top bar welcomes its private patrons to sample gritty brews. We try a Harlequin Neeper from the Brewers Law range, a set of beers that really allows the brewers to showcase their creativity. It's absolutely delicious. You know I'm a sucker for English hops. It's soft, juicy, utterly moorish. It's the kind of beer to bathe in for many a long hour. Alongside it, Kane, the head brewer, pulls me a pint with a sparkler on. He's from up north, good lad, of Moonlaw, a core range cast beer that has a distinct floral note and sessionability to it that serves the country pubs that surround the brewery well. After visiting Compton Abbas Airfield, the Gritchie Tap Room and Eatery, with spectacular views over the Cranbourne Chase Hills, we then head back to the brewery where I spoke to Kane, Ollie and Joe from the brewery, airfield and Richie's Pub, Law of the Land, to chat about the business, the beers and some of the wider issues facing the craft beer industry and hospitality venues at the moment. We were then joined by Guy Ritchie, who shared with us his devotion to the public house, which is rather infectious. Yes, he was married to a global pop icon, makes gangster films starring Finney Jones, and spent millions on his take on the legend of King Arthur. But as you'll hear from the Gritchy Brewing Company team and the man himself, it all serves as a stark reminder that after awards aside, Richie really is just another guy who loves beer, being down the pub and telling a good yarn or two over a few pints. So stay tuned to the Hot 4 podcast to hear all about Gritchie Brewing Company and for our exclusive interview with Guy Ritchie after this short message. The Hot 4 podcast is proudly brought to you by Charles Farham. Charles Farham have been sellers of hops since 1865 and hop growers for even longer. They stock nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90s and T45 pellets, and to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire and Yakima in the USA. At CharlesFarum.com Brewers can shop by pay-as-you-go or using agreed credit terms for yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. In addition to leading hop varieties from across the world the Farum's family range brings you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Moss. Mystic, Olicana, and Opus from their hop development program right here in the UK. If you'd like more information or expert advice, visit the Brewers Resource and FAQ pages on the website or contact their technical advisors for different uses, applications and recipes. They're always really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.com today. That's charlesfarram.com. This week on the Hot Four Podcast, I'm joined by, well, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Because there's three of you this time. Uh, I'm Ollie. I'm the bar manager at the Compton Abbas Airfield, which has just been taken over by
1: Mr. Ritchie. I'm Kane. I'm the operations manager at Gritchie Brewing Company. And I'm Joe. I am the bar manager at the Law of the Land pub in Fitzrovia.
0: Awesome. So we're here at Gritty Brewing Company, uh, which is it's is, is near Shaftesbury. So that's, is it Wiltshire or? Dorset or you
2: is technically in Dorset. Well, the brewery is technically in Wiltshire. But right, we do straddle the border.
0: Okay, because it's, it's on quite a lot of land, isn't it? It is not it So Great. On. About a thousand acres. Right. So before we chat about the brewery and the journey you guys have been on over the last six years, can you tell our listeners how you got into the brewing industry and a bit about your experience?
2: You know, that's the one question everybody asks, and I still don't have a good answer <laughs> for it. Um, it was a, a sort of a spur of the moment thing. Uh, I initially was doing a biochemistry degree and then saw the opportunity to specialise in brewing and distilling and that's all it took was, that sounds a hell of a lot more exciting than <laughs> what I'm doing, so I'll give that a shot instead.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: And yeah, it was. I loved it.
0: And then you worked at Edinburgh Beer Factory.
2: I did for seven years. Right. So what, various
0: what, roles. What, what brought you down here then?
2: They contacted me, they invited me down and I've yeah I've been here for the last two and a half, nearly three years. Cool, and Joe, how did you get involved in the brewing industry?
1: Well, um, I was just doing the usual 18th birthday, first day behind the bar sort of run. So I've worked in pubs for around 11 years now. I'm um, not quite 30, 29. So it's been pubs and bars in various places since then. And um, I moved to London start of 2019 and um, just saw that the Lord of the Land were hiring at the time. Didn't really know anything about it. Didn't know it had its affiliated Grichy Brewing as a sort of sister/slash group company deal. And yeah, it just sort of started from there. I Had a few trips to the brewery. Got to know the brewers like Kane quite well. And um, being the bar manager there, I have to do all the deliveries and get all the orders in. So it sort of sort of dribbled down from then. I had to get a bit more knowledge about the beers that we're selling from the Gritchy guys. And yeah, it's just sort of led from there, really.
0: Awesome.
3: So I'm brand new. I only joined the company about five, six weeks ago. And I've come from mainly a hotel and kind of cocktail background, but I learned to brew at a previous company I worked for. And ever since then, I've kind of fell in love with craft beer um, and beer as a whole. And yeah, I'm super excited to be part of the team. And I think it's a really exciting and cool time to be part of the company, because I think it's going to be time of change and of, you know, where the company's going to evolve, which is pretty really cool.
0: So we, we've just come from having lunch at the Compton Abbas Airfield. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is, just for the <laughs> listeners? So it's been a private airfield
3: since the 1960s and was run by a family for the majority of that time. Incredibly popular, has been a kind of a destination setting for a lot of customers and guests in the local area. Well, it was pretty rammed when we went, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think, you know, because of the, the location, the view... Which is amazing, and then the novelty of having, you know, kind of 1920s, 30s, 40s planes that are taking off next to you whilst you're having a nice scritchy beer or having a bite to eat. Um, I think it is, isn't a real kind of a unique experience. So yeah, so it's obviously been taken over by Mr Ritchie, and it's obviously changed quite a lot since that, and it's obviously been, it's grown. The actual site venue site has probably grown like two thirds in size, mm. um, and it's all been opened out and lots of glass and a new bar
0: and. Yeah, it looks lovely it looks, yeah it looks a really it's a really nice
3: nice space to be in. yeah
0: well i mean just just alluding to that the whole, the whole aesthetic of there and the brewery is just incredible you know i mean just this room where we're sat at the moment just to describe it it's did you say it was called the lodge is that right the shooting in? lodge yeah. yeah and um but it's you know it's got a like a, a bar in it how would you describe it? <laughs> it? It's kind of like a hunting lodge kind of vibe with a really nice, kind of old school looking bar with a copper, a polished copper top. Wooden beams and, you know, proper stone walls and everything. Kane, can you just tell us about the setup of the brewery that you've got here?
2: So we use a, a traditional two vessel system, approximately 41 hectolitre lengths. Two vessel system, for those that don't know, means we have a mash tun and then separate brew kettle. Uh, we have currently got eleven fermentation vessels, all dual purpose, all pressure rated. Our water source all comes from the borehole beneath us, so all the water we use is is drawn from the estate. Our own water source is really quite unique. I mean, we're in a a very, very hard water area, but we are luckily lucky that the estate we're sat on sits on natural greenstone. So we actually get quite a, a unique profile to our to our water. Mm. We are fully steam powered. If there's, if there's one thing that Mr. Ritchie is really keen on is, is the way the brewery looks when it functions and it really does look like an old-fashioned, old-school brewery but everything in there is top of the line and as up-to-date as can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. The whole sort of barn, rustic aesthetic of it and even the like the, some of the copper around the fermenters just, I mean, just looks amazing. It's awesome when you come down that driveway and you land at the brewery, you know, this big, like, wooden barn and all the the stonework and masonry, and then you've got, like, the big angel logo on the barn door. I mean, it's just... And then, obviously, you've got fields full of your own Marisotta, which we'll come to in a minute. It really is like a beer farm. Just looking at, actually, with the Marisotta that you, you grow here at Ashgrove Farm, how does that make its way into your... And how involved
2: is the brew in that process? Essentially, all of our Marisotta, um, 100% of it is sold to a, a local malting company where it's malted. It is mixed with a, a couple of other local farms and then we purchase it back from them. It's a traditional floor maltings. So you might know Warminster maltings. Yes, yeah, yeah. Marisotta is almost a uniquely British brewing malt. The, you really don't get these flavors everywhere. Yeah,
0: Brendan was saying yesterday when we were in the fields. So I'm in a field actually with Brendan, who's the manager of the Ashcombe Estate, which is owned by Guy Ritchie, where you grow your own barley. Yes, yeah, exactly. So what? So what? What varieties in this field?
4: This is Maris Otter, which is a variety which was developed in the 1980s, and it's a, uh, it's a sort of. It's a cross-pollinated. Um, well, it's made between two um, two different types of barley, and they designed it specifically for for malting, right? For breweries and stuff for, well, as a malting barley back in the 1980s. Um, it's uh, it's a winter barley, so you plant it uh, in the winter and um, and you harvest uh, late summer. Mm-hmm. It's not traditionally; it doesn't traditionally give great yields, um, but it does very well on, on chalky ground. Right. We've, got, we've got a lot of that around here, um, and it's yeah, it's just one of the traditional malting malting um, barley's which has has great flavours, used in traditional um, English ales, really.
0: So, what what are some of the challenges of growing?
4: Marisota. Uh, Marisota uh, challenges basically are pests. Right, you were saying it, about the birds migrating really that tree. Exactly <laughs> it. So when in its early stages of the of the head's developing, it has a, a sort of milky. It's, it's soft and milky, and that's when right. the birds like to attack it. And um, and it's easy for them to then digest. As it gets harder, it's hard. It's, it's difficult for them to digest. Um, also, it's um, getting it in the ground at the right time when there's enough. Uh, warmth in the ground and also enough you know enough moisture but not too much moisture um, um, and also it's it's not a very strong thing so it does it gets the ground gets dirty so right. it's it's keeping up with all the all the weeds and stuff like that and, and trying to keep it as clean as possible really. so, so
0: what have been the challenges with the weather and stuff recently because i know obviously across europe there's been like searing heat waves but here yeah. it's just been like pissing it down
4: yeah yeah yeah. i mean we had the heat so we had a really uh, long dry spell um and then obviously it's been pissing down then so now the challenge is actually harvesting it right because it has to be at a certain um moisture content before you can harvest it right it's around about you know 14-16% before you can harvest it you don't want it too wet you don't too dry um, so you have to wait for the right uh, the right weather so a bit of wind and a bit of sunshine for a couple of days will normally give you enough of an opportunity to harvest yeah. it um, yeah so that's the that's the main challenge with the, with um, marasota but it is yeah, it's, it's an old grain and not too many people grow it these days because it's not really as profitable as, as other malting
0: barley. right and then in the other field you've got spring barley yeah, I presume that's down barley. there right
4: that's right that's the spring barley um, so that has uh, it's obviously easier to grow. It's um more well more people buy it, sell it. A lot of it's exported to to Europe and goes to Amsterdam and uh, right to Belgium and places like that. So Heineken and those guys buy lots of it.
0: What from you guys? Uh
4: yeah, all this, oh, all right. this area. So this whole area. What even up there as well? Yeah, up there, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and lots of our neighbours as well. All all of it goes um goes to to Belgium and places like
0: that. Right, amazing. Yeah so there was recently an article that got written by a beer writer about terroir in mm-hmm. beer and he was saying there, the, the title of the article was there's no such thing as terroir in beer mm. and i would love to know as the estate manager you know doing all this what your thoughts on that is
4: well the thing is most of the barley is grown on
0: sort of chalky ground
4: so the terroir pretty
0: simple right um so it's
4: probably harder to differentiate compared to say wine
0: right that's interesting
4: uh, so it depends, you know, if you're, if you're organic, so to speak, or if you're spraying chemicals on it a lot, then definitely the tarot can change. Right. 5%. So we use a lot of, um, you know, just uh, natural. But this, this is uh, direct drilled. Right. So there's not, um, not a lot of flower tilling at the ground. We don't, we don't spray a lot of on there. Uh, we use a spray fertiliser, sure. But we also use... Um, the muck and stuff from the farmers, uh, yep. so cow dung and all that sort of stuff just to enrich the ground. Uh-huh. So well, I'd say the terroirs, so, 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 so. right? Um, but they're definitely a bit more. I would say. So, so, Actually, yeah. Easier to you know differentiate yeah. and taste
0: it. No, it was it was interesting. and I was just interested with with you, you know, having such an involvement in you know the the uh, the growing of the barley here yeah. um, because when I read it because before that point I was like oh yes it's definitely to r and but I'd not really understood it yeah, you yeah. know and then he, he made the argument saying well how, how can it be because there's lots of different hops coming from different places and, and how, how do you have a sense of something being tied to one location yeah. um, and it made me stop and think yeah actually you know, maybe he's right and I don't know what to think about this and I feel like it's something I should learn about and there's also so much debate online yeah, and I true. felt like when I had the opportunity to chat someone that's actually yeah. growing it yeah, what yeah. your thoughts were well so.
4: definitely because in the beer obviously you put in the hops Yeah, then yeah. maybe you put in um, the you know, winter barley or spring barley but then you might also put uh, some um, some you know malted crystal crystal um, crystal barley stuff in there um, so you've got the toasted flavour yeah. as well as other flavours and they all come from different areas so yeah. definitely there's a mixed of in there yeah. um, so you're definitely harder to to differentiate uh, I'm sure um, um, and some of the some of the beers you'll, you put American hops in but then English uh, English barley so yeah definitely diff- <coughs>
0: So let's just talk about the pub for a little bit and the the law of the land. Talk about the demographic that comes to the law of the land because from a conversation we were having earlier, you were saying that there's quite a wide range of people that come to the pub.
1: Yeah, like um, it's it's in quite a unique placement in terms of where it is in the city. It's just off um, Fitzrovia Square. It's right in the shadow of the BT Tower. So there is quite a lot not as much as let's say central but you do have quite a lot of offices around so um now we get in the evening especially from around five o'clock once they all have doors up and everyone goes everyone's always stopping off for a beer or two on the way to the station for example i mean you've been on the underground you need a pint of beer or two before you deal with going on there on rush hour so um yeah they, they was coming for a beer on the way to the station not so much mondays or fridays anymore I still feel that a lot of people are working from home those days. So it's down to sort of Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays. That's like the main times when we get the people in the satellite towns who work in the city coming in. The other days, you know, we can get tourists, families coming in for something to eat or just around the local area, popping in for a drink. Or we could get, you know, residents. There's a surprising amount of people I didn't realize this. Who live in the square itself and they often join us, be that for a beer in the evening or a bite to eat at some point on a Sunday, for example.
0: Yeah. Ollie had an amazing question when he was trying to hijack my role <laughs> earlier as podcast presenter. So um, over to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking earlier, yeah. So, what do you think in
3: terms of, because obviously you've worked at Law of the Land for the last four years, wh- how do you feel? Is changed, or if it has changed at all since COVID and how that's affected the, the customer base?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. Like, um, I remember my first month and a half at the law before... I was only there for about that long before lockdown sort of came into place. And, um, you know, you might be in a pub for 11 years, but that mad Friday shift on your first week in any new pub, it's always going to give you nightmares for the next few weeks, just how crazy it was. And it was packed, like Fridays were the big day back before lockdown. But um, like I said, now it's it's a horrible cliche, and I hate it when people say it, Thursdays on a new Friday. <laughs> but um, where we are in London it actually is the case now that no one bothers coming in on a Friday no more. So Thursday nights so are that last week hurrah. You get the rounds of 10, 12 pints ago, all the office lots letting their hair down. So we still have that Friday. Sort of busyness, but it's just changed days. Now it's Thursday. Slightly longer, calmer weekends, but a bit more hard and fast. I think during the weeks.
0: Yeah, how would you say, like the pub and the brewery, in particular, are, are recovering after COVID? It's something that obviously was massive, and a, we, we can see the the wider effects of on the industry as a whole because you know there, there are lots of breweries and pubs closing you know, cost of living crisis and inflation, which is, you know, in part a result of the pandemic and lockdowns. But you don't really hear those anecdotal stories of, like, how people are, like, getting on now. Like, So from a brewery perspective and a pub perspective, how are you finding the aftermath?
1: Well, um, as I'm sure your listeners probably know, it's, um, it took a little while to recover. Like lockdown may have ended and the restrictions were lifted, but it, people were still women and are in back when it first sort of finished. I was like, finished. Um, just people weren't sort of coming out as much, I think. In terms of, it took a lot for, again, people working there to actually come back into the office. They were still doing it remotely. So a huge amount of our trade got lost because of the whole work from home thing. And um, it has slowly crept back. I mean, I think we had a record breaking Thursday only about two weeks ago, as in from after lockdown. That was like our busiest Thursday, even through Christmas, I think that was the busiest Thursday. And it's nothing, like, it was a nothing day. There was nothing special going on. But that was reminiscent to the old days, those Fridays before lockdown when it was crazy. So it is creeping back, but I just feel like people's drinking attitudes have changed. People aren't sort of, obviously some are, but you don't get the huge mob of people going hard and heavy every Friday now. I feel that it has slowed down, it's still there and it's still, you know, the drinking culture is still present, but there has been a noticeable
2: change on people's attitudes toward it. And what about from like a brewing perspective? So From a brewing perspective, the brewery only started in very late 2017, so it was only just finding its feet when, <laughs> right. the, when lockdown hit. So I, I guess when, when lockdown hit, all we had to offer was home trade. And then when lockdown started lifting, we had a, a major point to prove. And we've, we've just gone from strength to strength, I think. In this local area that we're in, you'll be hard-pressed to find a venue now that doesn't stock us in some form or another. Mm. We, have, we have quite happily come out of lockdown with a big bang. Um, and now it's now it's time to keep pushing, really.
0: Yeah, amazing. It, it's interesting when you look at the industry as a whole at the moment, because there's no rhyme or reason to the some of the breweries that are really struggling, and some of the ones that are really thriving. And it's it's such an odd time. Whenever I I and Sean, who I'm sat next to, have these conversations with, you just get such a plethora of answers, and it's trying to trying to analyse where the common threads and what the patterns are is, is really tough because th- there just seems to be no pattern to it whatsoever. And I'm just gonna to add to that. I
3: think that ever since the pandemic, I think staycations have become so much more of a popular and apparent thing that people are choosing to do. And I think because of that, there's become a further accentuated interest in supporting local businesses, local producers.
0: I mean, at present, you you guys serve a variety of customers, ranging obviously from country pubs around here to like bars in central London, including the law of the land. As a brewery, what's your approach to making beers to suit these various customers, and what are some of the challenges you face in that process, and how do you overcome those challenges? Because it's quite you're appealing to with with different obviously different beers, but you're appealing to quite a a wide range of customers, really. Having experienced some of the pubs in Shaftesbury last night, it's, um, you know, and then obviously going to central London, like they're worlds apart. Like how how do you manage that
2: balance? I think we just have to be very conscious of what our market really is. So around the brewery, as you'll have seen whilst you, you wandered around, it's a very, very rural setting. All the country pubs around here are significantly food-led and the draft offerings they have, cask is still king. So we always always make sure that our cask is consistent, high quality and the sort of beer that everyone will come back to again and again. Mm. And then as we've ventured further into more urban areas, so now that we are selling into Southampton, Bournemouth, um, you know, the, the larger towns on our doorstep, again, the demographic changes and cask is no longer king. Hence, we've got high quality lager. We've got New England IPAs. We've got these bigger, bolder flavors coming through that just don't work in the food-led local rural pubs. Mm. Every pub landlord in this area you speak to will have their own way of doing things and they all know what it is they like. Um, so, if you're doing, if you're in those pubs, you're doing something right because they are so picky about what they buy. Mm. Um, if, you, if we had one batch of cast beers that was slightly out, we would be hearing about it for months. It, it's, yeah, we really do have to be very careful about how we please locals.
0: Yeah. I think it takes a different personality to run a country pub because they are quite tough environments, and I know we often think of like, oh, yeah, loads of people go and have a, a meal at a country pub and stuff, but, you know, loads of country pubs over the years have closed in those rural areas that tend to have a, an older demographic living in them just because of the life stage they're at, the disposable incomes, etc. My observations from having sold country pubs in the past when I worked in a brewery was once they have a particular beer... Trying to displace that beer is a right mission. And then, obviously, the, for, the, for the landlord, they've got the tension of keeping Jeff happy and all the other Jeffs and Janes and whoever's uh, saying their ways, but then also trying to encourage those new beers and new brands. I think a lot of that comes down to training, though, doesn't it? You were saying earlier, Joe, about some of the youngsters that work behind a bar. You, you look like you're itching to, <laughs> itching to yeah. diving on. Be
1: like, I was going to say youngsters, you're, you're talking about me, aren't Yeah, you? surely. <laughs> But um, I feel like like um just yeah going on to what Sean was saying, what you've been sort of leaning on to, it's like um first of all I think it is important to um know the sort of comparisons between the beers, you know, Jeff, we all know Jeff, come on. Um
0: Good old Jeff. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, classic <laughs> Jeff. Um he's having that. He's having he's having beer A, but you've only got beer B. If you can sort of give him like Sean was saying, those three or four buzzwords that everyone knows, even Jeff, in terms of flavours of beer, be that hoppiness, be that, you know, a level of sweetness or whatever sort of most forward flavour the hop's going to be. If you could, I always tell my staff to sort of, as long as you say it confidently with just that little bit of enthusiasm, I mean, beer's the easiest thing in the world to sell, in my opinion, it's not a hard sell. As long as you are enthusiastic about it and you actually look enthusiastic about it, it's contagious. If you're really bigging up a beer, I mean, oh, go on, I'll try that. And um, same in the world of wine. Exactly. Yeah, just got to say it. Yeah, the beer is good, and oh, yeah, all right. You know, as long as you say it, and that comes down to training, getting the sort of enthusiasm as well as the even basic knowledge. But obviously, the more knowledge, the better when explaining it, I think that goes a long way.
0: It's very easy when you work in a brewery or behind a bar and you, you know a lot about your subjects to you just make those presumptions that everyone knows what you know. And particularly when you work in the more quote unquote craft end of the industry, where you do talk to a lot of discerning drinkers that know what citra hops are, or you know what a centrifuge is, etc it's really dangerous to just presume that everyone knows what you're talking about. And I, I remember last summer being on holiday in the Lake District and there was a can from a local brewery that should remain nameless. And the beer name was just the three hops like Simcoe, Citra, Mosaic, like the Holy Trinity of hops. And it didn't really say anything about the flavor of that beer or anything. Now, as a craft beer nerd, I know what those hops taste like and I know what their DDH IPA is. But for 95% of people, they have no idea what those... Ac- well, here's a classic example. My wife's a teacher and she talks in acronyms. Uh, particularly when she gets with other teachers, they're all like, oh, yes, the DDH IPA RST is meeting the QRSR this week. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> And I I think we have to offer as brewers and pubs that education and make it as clear and as simple as possible. And that can be right down to something like having a little jar next to the cask ale with the colour of it, having some kind of flavour description on your pump clip, your keg clip. In fact, I thought this was an absolute stroke of genius from your designer, something I only noticed after looking at the can's Which have been sat on my windowsill because the designs are so beautiful looking, and we'll we'll come on to that in a minute. I only noticed that in the bowl that the angel is holding are the fruits or the ingredients that make up that beer. So with the Galaxy Neper, there's like a barley and an apricot. The apricot represents like the apricot type flavours from that hop, and I was like, that's it's very subtle, but that's, that's genius. And then. If you couple that up with oh, it's got these hops in, which tastes like this, and this beer tastes like this, then you're just helping those 95% of consumers along that journey. So coming back to Jeff, Jeff can make an informed choice because he might not like Simcoe. It might, Simcoe might sound weird, but he might like the taste of apricots. Just facilitating the choice of all those little hints and tricks. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, good, good way. So what do you guys think is the biggest challenge facing the UK brewing and hospitality industry at the moment? Uh,
1: well, on uh, my side of things, at the law of the land, um, I feel that, like, again, that like I sort of alluded to earlier, um, a lot of drinking habits are changing. Um, I think something that is interesting that I've noticed was um, a lot of people are sort of, I think, going sort of back to basics like, um, you do get a large, you know, a large variety of people coming in asking for the crafty, you know, 100% galaxy hops or, um, you know, they're looking for your citrus or your Chinook hops and all that jazz. But then um, I feel like a pub like us, we exclusively sell the gritty beers, um, apart from Guinness, because Guinness is Guinness.
0: <laughs> but... Um, well, we were talking about London Black earlier, really, weren't we? Oh, shout, yeah, sh- shout out to London Black. Um, <laughs> Everyone likes London Black. It
1: is <laughs> good, but um, I feel that it's a, it's a it's a hard place that me and Ollie are in because you do get your your old boys who've drank Stella, for example. Every single pub in London will have a Peroni, or a, you know, or a Stella, or a Prava, and then they walk into um, one of Mr Ritchie's pubs when it is the exclusive Gritchy products, it's quite hard to then shake out, again, what you alluded to earlier, just shaking out those habits and facilitating your, oh, you like lager, try the Angel's Law, for example. And then that leads on to you facilitating the sale. So it's a bit trickier to sell something that isn't that high street, every single pub in a 200 meters space selling. Mm. So that's sort of a little tricky sometimes. Obviously when we do give people a taste and um, we do talk about it and explain to them what the beer is, what it tastes like, I feel like people do appreciate the change. If you do the same thing, eat the same thing over and over again, you'll forget what other things actually taste like. So having none of the real sort of big dogs in terms of lagers or IPAs in the house, it um, opens up people to a lot more variety and then they could lead on, it could lead them down that rabbit hole into then trying other sort of smaller, less dominant breweries and even designs of beer. So that could be a nice sort of spark for going down the, as we all know, the slippery slope of having your double pistachio fancy swanky super drinks and all that jazz down the way. That sounds awesome. I know, <laughs> right? That's a, no one steal that idea, please.
3: Just think, going like back to like pe- people's drinking habits and kind of going out habits, how they've changed. I think, kind of linking back to what I was saying, I think people are, I think they, people are coming out more again now than they were. But I think, yeah, like Joe was saying, the drinking days, I think that's still a thing because of how many people still work from home. Um, but then at the same time, like I was saying earlier, I do think people are going to spend more money going forwards in the years to come in in this country instead of going abroad. Because I just think with you know, the first of the pandemic and now uh, with the cost of living crisis and stuff, I think people are wanting to stay uh, more locally and we've got a beautiful country and we should really celebrate it because it's amazing.
0: So, Definitely. Yeah. And What about from a brewing perspective? Like where do you see some of the challenges for, for breweries at the moment?
2: Actually, I think The start of this year was very, very challenging for the brewing industry. Uh, landlords were nervous. It was really difficult to encourage anyone to hold on to any, any stock. All they wanted was last-minute deliveries and smaller volumes because none of our landlords were certain they were going to be here the week after. Um, but we are slowly seeing that change. Confidence seems to be coming back. Um, we've got venues that would have traditionally only, being, only been macro venues now searching out something local, something different. Um, And I think the difficulty for us going forward is making sure that people are aware of what local breweries can actually produce. And there are still a lot of places, um, even where I'm living in in Bournemouth, you will only find macro beers. Um, So I think think it really is, the challenge now is is to just adjust customer perspectives to to realise that, Local, most of the time, is is better.
0: I think the temptation for a lot of breweries, particularly more on the... I don't want to use the word craft, because what does that even mean? Like, it, the, the hype end, I should say, as you were talking about the pistachio, <coughs> pistachio beers earlier, is there's still a, a massive battle just to get consumers... Who do drink the Heineken? Who was it earlier you said about Heineken being a macro... it Was you saying <laughs> people perceive Heineken to be? Oh, I, do, I thought it was like a micro brewery, but like again, when you're working in the industry, and you know a lot about beer. You know these things. I've got friends, you know, that I'm on the school run with that know absolutely nothing, and they drink a beer occasionally, and so they're, they're unaware. And this and, and this still has to be this. And I, I keep talking about education, but that. It has to continue to, all all those points of differentiation need hammering home and championing like, yeah, locally produced beer with locally produced ingredients by people who are near to you, you know, either locally or whether like in your case with Law of the Land, it's obviously, you know, the brewery and the the pub are miles and miles apart, but there's still a touch point in that place. And giving them that alternative, to what's out there because that might be the next step along the road for them before they wind up drinking pistachio, peanuts, raspberry ripple, infused sours.
2: I do think over the last couple of years though, we really have seen the rise of accessible craft beer. Mm. Um, I mean, when I started brewing, there were very, very, very few craft brewers who even attempted lager and now... Everyone does. You'd be hard-pushed to find a craft brewery who doesn't have yeah. even a reasonable attempt at a lager on, on keg. Yeah. It's, it really has. The craft beer is really opening itself up to the masses now. It really is accessible to anyone.
0: Yeah. You know, and, I like, your lager's really nice. You know, it's got a really, The Heller's Lager's just got this really nice, malty, slightly nutty flavour to it. You know, some good hot hop bitterness with it, but not, like, too aggressive, you know, and it's... Like, I'd choose it any day over a, another lager because it's just a really, really tasty beer. <laughs> so, just ch- changing tack a little bit, and I have to address the elephant in the room, so to speak. Like, th- there are quite a few celebrities out there who have their own beer brands, including like Hawkstone, for example, which is a brand brewed by Cotswold Brewing Company for former Top Gear presenter Jeremy Clarkson. And then George Clooney's got a brand called Casamigos Tequila. I don't know. Oh, is he sold it. So it made a fortune. Right, <laughs> but Guy Ritchie actually owns this brewery, as well as the pub in in London, and then the Airfield Cafe in tap room nearby. Like, what would you say makes Guy different as a business owner in comparison to other famous individuals who just own a brand?
2: He's not just a man putting a name on something. You will see him on a regular basis in the brewery, seeing what's going on, trying the beers. He started this brewery not as a money-making kind of factory. It's not, we're not huge. He started this brewery because he's really passionate about what what we make. He loves British pub culture, he loves beer. He he really cares about these brands. How does that translate into the pub?
1: Yeah, obviously he owns the brewery and the law of the land as well. And um, when he does come in, and he does quite regularly, depends if he's in town, you know, jet-setting everywhere. He just takes a really active role in actually not just, obviously, owning the place, but he can go around, he's there, he's looking at everything. He's got such an eye for detail. And I think that goes across, for one, the beer. You know, he's quite partial to an English lure, I think, is his go-to when he's at the pub. Even down to the small details of the glassware in the pub, just the general... You know what the tables are looking like, what pictures are on the wall, like that eye for detail and that active role, I should say, has really made the pub what it is today. Being owned by Mr. Ritchie, you do get the odd person drift through the door. Oh, has, has, has Mr. Ritchie been in lately, or oh, does he actually, uh, does he actually own it, or is it just the name behind, uh, you know, like a shadow company, whatever? And um, no, he's so active in it, and um, yeah, that pub I know, wouldn't be what it was without his. Sort of eye for detail, making it welcoming, and that sort of quality of the atmosphere there. I think he has a big role in that. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, I'm, I personally haven't been to the pub, I know you have, but obviously having just come back from Compton Abbas Airfield, you know the, the the vibe up there is amazing. You know, it's it's again that attention to detail. Um, I mean, it obviously speaks volumes because, like, the whole place was rammed and it's, like, midweek <laughs> lunchtime. Yeah.
3: No, it is awesome. Um, and I think that's a real a testament to uh, not what, he, not only what he's done with the place, but, um, you know, the reputation he's got as well. So I think, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I think when you work for a, um, a proprietor with the kind of background and prestige like Mr. Ritchie, but at the same time of him having a very um successful career in the field of work he's chosen to do he's obviously incredibly passionate about food and beverage and hospitality as well and I think that's is as a as a person working for him I think whenever you work for somebody like that and they've got a real passion uh for something it really injects it kind of bleeds through the company into um down the line down the ladder I suppose so Yeah. yeah it's a really really cool Thing to be and there was even a Spitfire that landed on the air yeah, yeah. That was pretty cool. The guy with the was mustache first, was first <laughs> time ever actually ever seeing one. Um, but um I'm actually a self-proclaimed huge. Uh, petrol head so um working at a place where there's like v12 uh spitfires taking off and stuff's pretty cool
0: i mean so. the pilot with the big curly mustache yeah I mean, he, he, he looks like, like a pilot he from a film yeah <laughs> 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 he looked
3: like he just shot down some uh <laughs> some german planes or something yeah um but no he uh yeah it's it's, it's really cool um and mr richie does come in you know kind of semi-regularly um when he when he's around a bit like when he's in london i suppose um but whenever he comes in yeah he's um yeah, as, as Joe said, he's got a real good eye for detail. He's always, you know, there's things that he, if he thinks there's a, something he could change or something would look better in a certain position or something, he, he's very hands-on and that's really good for, for, for people like myself because that's why I prefer to
0: yeah. have that awesome. feedback. So. You, I, well, I, I, as you can tell with my hearing aid in, I'm partially deaf and... It's an absolute pet hate of mine if I go to the tap room and it's like, <laughs> you know, and it's so loud and I'm having to yell and so on. And, and I think one of the things I appreciated earlier, and I know that the, the vibe is a bit different in the airfield because it's like a, um, an eatery and, and cafe as well as like a tap room space, like all, all in one. Then obviously you've got planes coming in and out. Just being able to have a scene, have a conversation. And I do think that has been lost in pubs. Like just... Absolutely. That's, that's why I, I much prefer going to the pub where there isn't music in the background mm. and it is like a, a sit down and like, oh, how's your week been or whatever. Yeah, heating, you know, tem- yeah. heating settings, uh, yeah.
3: temperature, uh, music level settings, making sure every cushion is kind of plumped in a certain yeah. way. I mean, it's just, I know these things sound like they don't mean anything, but if you add them all up, that literally adds to the guest experience.
2: Yeah. And I do think it's really worked. I regularly stop in to the law of the land, even just for one beer if I'm traveling through by train. And you can walk in there on your own, and either the bar staff will introduce you to someone, or someone and you—you—you never, not really, and you will talk to everyone. It really is a a pub for conversation. Yeah, it's it's one of the best places to stop over just to just to have a beer because you are not just stopping for a beer on your own. Oh, Joe. Joe's feeling loved. I'm (laughs) gonna have to
0: come. I'm I'm tearing up here, boys. That was that was lovely, Kane. Thank you, darling. (laughs) Great. Well, I mean, it's been awesome having you guys on, on the podcast this week. Where, where do you see Gritty Brewing Company going and the, the pub and the airfield over the next few years? What's on the horizon for you guys? In terms of the pub, we're, um, obviously we are
1: working on making the place, the law of the land, um, just an accessible place for everyone. It's not just going to be for a film buff who knows who the owner is It doesn't have to just be for the craft, beer heads, drinking our New England IPAs. Um, We want, pretty much, we want to get all there and everyone, people coming in, coming for a beer, coming in for a chat. We've got such a good base of regulars, which is, I never thought I would see. I'm not originally from London. I didn't think there were such things as regulars in pubs in London. But we've got such a good community around us at the moment. And um, I'm just hoping we can keep up this slow progression in terms of getting people in you know sometimes the atmosphere in there really is electric and there's no bells or whistles it's just the people we have in at the time mm. that makes it so if we can keep doing that keep selling the gritty beers I mean I'm always looking forward to new ones and also just making a great dining experience too you know we've got bar snacks so you know no pub just does beer anymore you've always got to sort of have that food to come with it and I've Our restaurant upstairs, it's only small, about nine tables, but, I mean, that's getting three-week waiting lists for a roast dinner, so it's quite a good thing. The food
0: does look really good when I've seen it on Instagram. (laughs) Oh,
1: in the wintertime, a roast dinner and a pint of a hashtag pitchy bread.
0: I'm a a real sucker for, like, food Instagram. Yeah, I love those videos.
1: (laughs) And, yeah, like, um, yeah, the food's really good. Our chefs are great. And, um, yeah, just maybe try and sort of get the beer and the foods becoming more intertwined. Like we were talking earlier, like using our gritchy beers in the menu, you know, having our, our English law battered fish or, mm. you know, all that stuff. There's so much room to sort of branch out and get such more in-depth with the brewery, even more so than we already are. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that in the future. And what,
0: what about the brewery?
2: I think we've got two things happening with the brewery in the future. We really need to continue supporting the, the local community because we really are the brewery of the local community around here. And secondly, we're finally letting the, the team stretch their wings a bit and mm-hmm. kind of expanding our selection to really include those those big, exciting, bold flavors going forwards.
3: Yeah, and just for me to finish, I suppose, um, I'm very happy to be uh, new and part of um, the team. And I'm really excited to see how the effort gonna be changing over the course of the next few months. Got lots planned. Um, between me and you and there's a lot there are lots of exciting things events um but new new oven going in new pizza oven uh, which will be offering um, some flatbreads pizzas we've got a outdoor smoking barbecue area that's being installed so lots lots going on so just check keep checking the website and keep up to date on social media and watch the space awesome
0: and just to finish off what what's the website address kane
2: www.gruchiburu.com
0: Before our exclusive interview with Guy Ritchie, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor for the show this week, Charles Farram. As regular listeners to the show, you'll know that I am a big fan of British hops, especially those from Charles Farram's breeding program. Varieties such as Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Jester, Moss, Mystic, Olicana, and Opus are delivering beautifully fruity flavors with big intense aromas. Now, the studious amongst you will have noticed that I missed one out from that list. I am talking about Harlequin. As a great example of what Harlequin can do in a beer, Richie's Harlequin Hop Dnieper from their Brewer's Law range delivered smooth hints of passion fruit, peach, and pineapple backed up with complex tropical notes. All British varieties are grown in Herefordshire and Worcestershire, except for moss, which is British-derived but is grown in the Czech Republic, and they are utterly a joy to brew with. Charles Farham also worked with farms from across the world and are able to supply leading varieties such as Citra, Mosaic, and Simcoe, and many more, as well as malts, yeast, flavorings, and brewing aids. Visit charlesfarham.com to find out more and visit their online shop to place your next order. That's charlesfarham.com. Now, back to the show. It's far from the Joe Rogan podcast, which I believe you are on, right, at some point? I was on Early Doors, actually. I, I, I watched that. I I yeah,
3: movies, I watched
5: five, six, seven years ago. What's he like, Joe Rogan? Yeah, what is he like? He was lovely. The reason I did it is because he was in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it was really before Joe Rogan was Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. So, and we were promoting some movie, I can't remember what, at the time. And he was, my partner had listened to him a lot because he's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, and he was creating a bit of heat then, but principally because he was into jiu-jitsu. Um, we, we got stuck in there. It was great fun yeah, because yeah. Joe's incredibly easy to talk to. We had enough in common for it, to, for it to be fun. But it
0: was pre-Joe Rogan being sort of Joe Rogan. Yep. Firstly, given you're a critically acclaimed director, producer, and screenwriter, why start a brewery? Well, it's pubs, really. I mean, it's my love of pubs, um,
5: which the two are connected. My interest in storytelling really comes from pubs. I spent most of my youth in pubs, Um, posh ones and not posh ones. They didn't really seem to be posh ones in the old days. What there was is you had saloon bars and public bars, and that was about as posh as it got. And then I suppose in the 80s it started delineating, you sort of get... Gentrified pubs. Right. I took a position on this so I didn't like that. I like the saloon public thing because I mean, although it's been some time that those two, the, the delineation has been that conspicuous, but what it meant is that you had everyone under one roof mm. as opposed to the gentrified gastro pubs, meant that the sort of working man didn't find himself in a public bar. He went. He started feeling rather uncomfortable with the whole thing and then shoved off down a pub with fruit machines in it. Right. It was the worst of all worlds because you didn't end up with a public house. You ended up with a place for the, the, the gentrification of London, so to speak, who were quite snotty about their food. And fruit machine pubs. And you want to keep both worlds satisfied under one roof. And I thought the best way of doing that is to stick to the saloon of the public. That way, at least you get both, let's call them genres, yep. um, under one roof. Everyone told stories from what I remember growing up in pubs. And you were in the pub for, as I was yesterday as well, I'm slightly gun-shy today. But we went in for lunch, it was eight-hour sesh. So, and that's what we always used to do. You you sneak in for one. Then the good thing about a pub is that you go in, you can kick it around for a bit, and if it's not working, then you just push off. There's no great investment. And mm. it's the spontaneity of a boozer that I like. And if it if it generates a sesh, then it generates a sesh organically. So yesterday it did. So we were in there for eight hours yesterday, but that's what we always used to do. And everyone used to tell stories and they have funny stories. And there are people that seem to be expert storytellers. Yeah. Um, so my love of storytelling really came from pubs, and then my love of pubs was just intrinsic to growing up. Actually, I was talking to the landlord and the boozer I was in yesterday. I was in the Beckford, which is local. The other great thing about pubs is they're not subject to fashion, uh, where restaurants are. Uh, we have a pub in London, and you know it's pretty consistent. You know, once you're established and you're as long as you keep providing what it is that you claim that you can provide. Pretty steady, mm. you know. That's not the same when it comes to any other house of entertainment. they much more subject to fashion and fads, which is uh, the classical theme of a, of a pub I like and the classical theme of beer I like. We actually started drinking rather grand wine in the pub yesterday, but then after not so long a period of time, as a palate cleanser, came in various quantities of pints. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then one went back to the wine. So... Yeah, it, it works for me in all sorts of capacities. Breweries are fun, pubs are fun. Uh, it's unique more or less to the UK or the British Isles. Uh, and it's a culture in which I'm steeped in and enjoy.
0: Yeah, when we spoke before, we spoke about your interest in like, obviously you just said a bit there about British pubs. Why do you think that's important for the British culture at large here in the UK? And do you feel like we're losing some of that? I'm
5: not sure if I do think it's important for right, culture okay. at large. I. I just think culture's important right. and I'm a fan of culture and I'm a fan of different cultures too. You know, it, you, you quickly drift these days into the conversation about culture, and into the conversation about identity because one is intimately connected with the other. You can't have culture and not have identity. Mm. The question is, is do you entangle yourself within the identity and the culture? And then it, becomes, it ends up being a political conversation because identity has somehow become politically themed. But anything that encourages the culture and which I'm familiar with and I find to be authentically egalitarian rather than falsely egalitarian and somehow the public house managed to capture that sense of egalitarianism through 1,500, 2,000 years of boozing, it's an authentic license to be egalitarian Mm. in a non-egalitarian world. And that's a respite. And a classical respite, and it's it's a quirk and uh, idiosyncratic and unique to the UK. So I encourage it for that reason, because anything that encourages uh, authentic egalitarianism, why wouldn't you be in favour of? The problem with egalitarianism is when it's it's forced, um, and it doesn't it, it's not generated through an organic sense of expression, if you will, then you end up with being forced to do things, and that's never as attractive. So why wouldn't you encourage that culture? I just think it's a wonderful culture. It's good in the winter and good in the summer and good in the autumn and good in the spring and good in the day and good at night. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of pubs. I'm a fan of beer.
0: Yeah. I think, again, from when we spoke before, you talked a lot about Loric tradition and some of the religious iconography within the gritty Brewing Company and the, the branding, including now fermenters are named after Archangels. And I'd love for you to share how and why you want to inject that into the branding. I think it's
5: somehow related to the conversation that we're just having. How do you reconcile disparate worlds? And I suppose that's what we're talking about. Mm. about authentic egalitarianism is a kind of reconciliation of disparate worlds. And it's a balance. The Archangels is a Loric tradition to religiosity as there is an established tradition. And I see them as as one, as the concealed seed that is... One could argue that this is trying to... I think creativity and art are one of the same. So the kind of word, is it interchangeable? The question is, is how do you articulate and capture what is art and what is creativity? And I was trying to come up with this a couple of days ago, and it's something about... It's a recognition that the concealed seed... Is actually the engine that drives the revealed tree, so to speak. Yep. So the the question is: is can you, when you look at the expression of art, can you see that there's something concealed behind it that generated it? You then you find yourself quickly in the world of paradox, uh, that what you think you're looking at is really the reflection of a projector, and it's the projector that is the source of the generation of nutrition in every respect. And what people try and do is they try and give the credit to the screen rather than the projector and art in its most elegant form is the recognition and feeling that the influence of the projector is somehow imprinted upon the screen and you can feel that the sense of the projector is the genesis of the expression so getting into the esoteric aspect of all forms of creativity which leads into narrative and then, funnily enough, leads into pubs. So the Loric tradition in pubs, for example, most of the names of pubs are are Loric and they come from either mystical or lorical traditions. So the, the Loric tradition is recognized as the concealed tradition and the established tradition is the established tradition. So traditionally in folklore and folk narrative, it is about the, the genesis of all things that are interested is, is passed down through the Loric or oral tradition, not the revealed or established tradition. So the having fun in a boozer is to do with a recognition that there is a genesis that is not revealed. And the pub is the, the tapestry in which that allows itself to express. Itself. So the best version of having a good time at a pub is two or three, four pints, up to 16, um, (laughs) in in which in which you can have an authentic human experience. Mm. Because really what you're after is a human experience. And everyone's chasing a human experience. It's a church that can allow you to do that. churches should allow you to do that, but they don't because churches end up get confused between the projector and the screen themselves because establishment takes over. So it's a recognition that the genesis of all things interesting is concealed. And there's no reason why the pub shouldn't be a church as much as the church should be a church the downside of a church being a church is it's very rarely spiritual and usually religious. Yeah. And one is the structure and one is the essence. Religion tends to be in its most um, expressed and revealed form to be part of the structure not part of the essence. So uh, music and beer or alcohol, there, there is a correlation that you're sort of dancing between two worlds, like music is an interface between two worlds. And that's why it evokes so much emotion. And beer and spirits, hence the word, also operates as an interface between the two worlds. So there is something of a Loric tradition within the brewery and within the branding, that that which is concealed is more powerful than that which is revealed, I think ultimately is what it comes down to. So the Archangels have a, a Loric tradition. And that tradition is is if you if you can manage to align the four archangels and you end up with the perfect balance, you have the, the so the three. By the way, stop me because no, no, this can't get too can far. Right? <laughs> so the, so the <laughs> archangels represent fire, air, water, and earth. And the idea is if you can balance the three archangels between Gabriel who's fire, Raphael, I think, is in the middle, Michael is water, and Earth is Nuriel, I think it is. And if you can can balance those three, then you have the perfect manifestation in Earth. And the principle being that if you can get that right in beer, you end up with the perfect beer. So there's a consistency to theme within everything that we've been talking about, really. Uh, And art comes into that, and creativity comes into that, and having a jolly good time in the pub comes into that. The pub comes into that, the church comes into that. And I suppose it's spirit and form.
0: Yeah. One of the things I really liked about the branding, just off the back of everything you've said, is how those archangels as well have meanings of interconnectedness and peace and harmony and deep thought and poetic simplicity and how those virtues are very human virtues that as you say, can be experienced in the pub. And they're not tangible things like say, when you're talking about the projection of the screen, you kind of grab them out of the air, so to speak. And in the right environment, like the pub, you grab it. You know, you might grab the, the moment of deep thought or you might have that moment chatting with someone and have a, a deep moment of connection. Would you say that you're trying to instill that essence into the pub and into a beer? Well, I think you want to be subservient to it or at least in the sense that you
5: recognise it, right? So there's a recognition and a respect for that which is unseen Um, and that's consistent with everything else we've been talking about. So the, the pub and the brewery should be consistent with that. It's some respect for the genesis of life, whatever that is, however ethereal that is, but there's an unseen positive force that animates everything that you see and i i'm unqualified to articulate exactly what that is but it's there and i think that you need to be subservient respectful of that and everything manifests itself in in that sense
0: yeah how much would you say being in the pub growing up has impacted your filmmaking and Writing stories. Well, it
5: might, the, the genesis of being interested in narrative was right. because I was used to a tradition which doesn't exist anymore. But when I used to go to country pubs, you always used to be a folk singer. Don't know what happened to that. I thought it was the best thing in the world. And there was always a few old boys that could tell a story. And the, tr- the tradition of folk music and the tradition of folk narrative is... I could spend some time on this, by the way. So Feel free. you to stop me on this. But what I love about folk music, traditional folk music and folk music that goes back to the 8th to 12th century, uh, up to the 19th century or even the 20th, whatever century we're in now, is that before you had other forms of mediums and other forms of entertainment, everything was encapsulated within folk stories and folklore and folk music. So there's always a spiritual, religious and dark component into any old folk uh, song mm. so they managed to tick all the different boxes uh, which now different mediums express. So within a folk song you've got a film, a drama, you got life, you got death, you got birth, you had a complete myriad of conflicting elements all within one poetic, expression Mm. that elegantly and this was the trick of storytelling was to elegantly dovetail um, and harmonize those disparate narratives and that's the tradition of of storytelling as opposed to just telling a story you find there are people that can tell a story and there's they craft the story and then there's easter eggs hidden within that story so you think you listen to one story and then all of a sudden it, it falls off a precipice into oh my god I've just been yeah, I've been led down this road only to find out that actually it's not the road that I thought I was going down at all. And that's the trick of storytelling. And that was my experience with those that used to craft storytelling. And I'm I'm unfamiliar with that tradition now, but that might be because I'm too busy and farting around and doing other things. <laughs> but I was I was I was aware of that when I was 14, 15, and 16 around those ages in a pub and I'd listen to some old geezer telling a story and I could recognise the different aspects and the sophistication of how he had told a story and he'd clearly been telling stories for a very long time, inherited a tradition of telling those stories. It was more conspicuous in the country than it was in town.
0: Right. The last question I've got is what's your hope for the British pub in the future? What would you like to see? Because you, you talked about how pubs used to be and lamented in some areas what they've become. What would you hope for the British pub? Well, I I like them.
5: So you don't want to see them continue to con- contract. It's very hard for a pub to survive. Um, I'm sure it is for every business, but if you run a pub, then you find out just how hard it is to make a pub survive. And there doesn't seem to be any leeway or assistance in any direction in order to keep pubs alive. So anything that extends the hand of generosity and fraternity toward the uh, world of publicans, I'm in favour of because um, obviously no one likes an alcoholic, but at the same time you do like the, the the most benign and nutritious aspect of of the tradition and culture of English pubs. So. I'm not sure if there's such a thing as a bad pub. And we, I'm uh, not sure if you can say that about anything else. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree that we... I'm not going to
0: name the pub we were in, yeah. but we were in a pub last night, and it was like a proper, like a fruit machine, old-school boozer, as you put it. And I've not been in one of those kind of pubs for years, but it, that reminds me of growing up in a township on the north of Sheffield. Even just the smell when you walk in, of like disinfectant mixed with beer, mixed with sminge, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. But the, there was something very romantic about it, because it, it took me right back to... The 90s, when I first started drinking underage, <laughs> bit in these local pubs. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. There was even a trend recently on Twitter amongst like beer writers and beer nerds where people were like, oh, I've gone to a rough pub. I mean, that, that's a conversation in and of itself. But I think that these places serve the communities that are there. They do, and there's something unpretentious about them, right? There's such a thing as
5: a pretentious pub, of which I may be guilty of possessing, <laughs> because I quite like pretentious things as much as I like unpretentious things. And They're, they're just, they are what they are, right? And I'm, I hate bad lighting, but in a bad pub. I don't mind bad lighting. And I just like it for being what it is. And if any boozer around here has been a boozer for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. So it's earned its keep and it's it's allowed to have bad lighting if it wants to have bad lighting have bad lighting and and, and curiously I love being proved wrong because if I had my druthers I would change a booze and say I'll do this I'll do that and the other and then I go well, actually would I I think I just quite like the way it is and I'm not sure if there's anything else like that on everything else I go oh yeah I'd improve it by doing this not sure if that's the case with the pub
0: yeah there's a book by a beer writer called pete brown called shakespeare's local and it was about this one particular pub from shakespeare's time right up to present day that obviously shakespeare would frequented and it's just so interesting looking at the the rich history that has happened over hundreds of years in this one particular building and place and the wealth of mankind that has come and gone you know and all the stories that would have been told in those four walls and No,
5: I'll just finish that off with one other thing. I used to be married to someone American and she actually became quite sympathetic towards pubs, but initially she just could not understand why you'd go to a bar... And it just doesn't translate in America. Mm. It's just you're an alcoholic if you go to a bar in America. <laughs> and you, it's not a place that you take your kids to. And, it's, and it took years for that to gradually percolate, mm. that you just could go to the pub for, and even not have a bev, you know, you, and you could take the kids along. And it was like, how's that work? And it's kind of, it's, it is unique to, to this culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Grand. thank you very Great. much. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, Uh, Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers.